0: Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You're about to hear the recording of a live conversation. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Tashi Dele, and welcome to Tibet Talks. I'm Ashwin Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's episode. On this show, We have a discussion that promises to provide illumination. Our guest today is a longtime resident of the United States, but she was born in Tokyo. And in fact, she is a descendant of Japan's last Samurai. As a fine artist, she has developed a creative aesthetic that was strongly influenced by the philosophies of both Bushido, the moral code of the Samurai and Buddhism. However, Our guest's passion in life also lies in philanthropy. 20 years ago, she established Books for Children, an organization that creates children's books and donates them to Tibetan refugees. She has created six picture books, including two in collaboration with Tibetan communities in exile. Our guest's most recent work is a beautiful book called The Extraordinary Life of His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, An Illuminated Journey. And I should mention that that book is now available in our ICT store at www.savetibetstore.org. And we'll include that URL in the comment section of our Facebook Live post. In this Tibet Talk, we'll discuss the book with our guest and we will dig into her work on the Tibetan environment, identity, and cultural awareness. So it's my pleasure to introduce her to you now. Please join me in welcoming our guest for today's Tibet Talks, Rima Fujita. Rima-san, hello and welcome to Tibet Talks.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm just so thrilled and honored. Thank you so much, everybody.
1: It's our pleasure and we're so grateful to you for making time to be on the show. I would like to introduce our moderator for today's discussion. She is my colleague at the International Campaign for Tibet, ICT's Interim Vice President, Tencha Getzo. Tencho, with that, I will let you take it away. Thank
3: you very much, Ashwin, thank you. Rima-san, it's uh, so lovely. Uh, to have you with us in conversation here on our Tibet Talks program. Um, We started this program um, about a year and a half ago and primarily to bring um, also to our audience, to share how Tibetan culture and uh, Tibetan wisdom has, has touched so many people because as you know, International Campaign for Tibet, we are a membership organization and behind us are hundreds of thousands of people who love tibet who care about tibet who um you know who uh, listen to his holiness the dalai lama's teachings and who have been uh, moved by that and also we have supporters who are um uh, who um, are challenging what China is doing inside Tibet, who are aware of the situation in Tibet, and who really want to make a difference for Tibetans. Um, but today we are here um, to talk about you because you have also a special connection to Tibet. And you know, you have these, so we learn, we want to learn more about you. Um, so I want to start by asking you to share, uh, tell us a little bit about your art your background when did you start how is it and how do you describe your art because it's very unique it's very vibrant and it's uh it's a, it's its own um uh, visual, uh creative process i think so could you tell us about that
2: yes thank you tanjola first of all thank you so much for inviting me and uh, i thank everybody at ict and um, also molly our wonderful friend and um, I'm so happy to be here thank you and my art um, I was an only child so I was always spending time alone uh, especially drawing and um, when I was about first at the first grade I I was already sketching things around me no one told me to do I just start doing that and then I always knew I I was going to be an artist, and um, my this style I have right now. um, uh, I started this style when I was at uh, junior year at Parsons School of Design in New York, and the reason was that I was doing line drawings until then, and I don't mean to brag, but I became really good at it and everything I drew looked just so good and perfect. And I found it kind of boring because to me, it's also a Japanese uh, aesthetics, but we find beauty in imperfection. Like it's called wabi-sabi in Japan. Uh, Maybe you've heard the word wabi-sabi. It means, there's beauty in everything, even when it's not perfect looking. Mm. And that's the culture I grew up with. So I was drawing and drawing and drawing, and everything I drew looked so good, and I I got so bored. So I say, how can I make drawings or paintings without drawing lines? So, um, I came up with this idea, I, I didn't invent or anything, I'm sure somebody before me did it many times, but I took a, a black paper and start started to lay lines, uh, not lay uh, lines, colors. So, in other words, I do a reverse technique that this, the lines, black lines you see uh, in my, my art, um, is the color of the, the surface. In other words, I do not draw lines anymore. I leave, I create the lines by laying uh, colors. But I'm sure you're, you're familiar with, because um, your husband is a wonderful, wonderful artist. So I'm sure it's nothing new. Uh, but that's how I started my style. Um, uh, and uh, ever since, I've been working that way but i i also like the fact that i i start with the black because it becomes a little bit philosophical but it's almost like putting the light on something which already exists but you cannot see because it's dark mm-hmm. so my work is putting the light into on to something which already exists so that people can see and enjoy and appreciate so it's like my dream, because everything I draw or paint, um, the visions, I, it, they come to my dreams. That's, only, uh, that's all I paint. Um, I used to paint things I can touch, things I can uh, see, tangible things. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, for many years, actually, I only draw and paint the visions I see in my dreams.
3: Thank you, it's so interesting to hear your process. As you said, uh, my husband is an artist also, he dabbles a little bit and he talks about lines also, but he talks mm-hmm. also about, uh, in the Tibetan sense, and mm-hmm. he talks how um, the lines are there, but then the lines have to flow. And and it's like a movement, it's not constrained, but it has to be, I, I, I'm trying to, No, but uh, but I understand. I
2: understand. It's a mm -hmm. it's a constant challenge of what to control and what not to control. Ultimately, letting go of the control would be the ideal, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like life,
3: (laughs) like in life, (laughs) same
2: thing. Same thing in art. Yes.
1: Yes.
3: (laughs) So from art to Tibet, how, I mean, you didn't grow up, uh, how did you uh, learn about Tibet, or how did that connection uh, become, because, and I, I mean, this, I haven't, uh, we haven't met in person, but I feel like we do, because we have so many layers of connection, we know almost (laughs) so many people between us, uh, that I feel we know you, Um, but you have been, connected for a long time with Tibet how did that start and can you share that journey as well
2: yes Um, Mm. so everything started with a dream as I said before I dream a lot Mm. and one night many years ago I heard this voice in my dream and it said help Tibet now and it was a commanding voice and I've always taken dreams seriously. So I went to the library the next day and spent all day there researching about Tibet. Until that day, I really didn't know anything about Tibet. And I didn't even know who the Dalai Lama was, seriously. And then I learned about the tragic history of Tibet uh, for for the first time that day. And I was quite, Shocked and surprised that that I had never, you know, knew known about this. And um, but then I asked myself, what can I really do for Tibet? Because Mm -hmm. I'm not a politician or billionaire or a movie star. I'm an artist. So what can I really do? And I kept thinking uh, what I could do. And then all of a sudden I began meeting Tibetans very naturally. It it was very strange in a way, but it was very magical. And I think Tibet matters so much to me because first of all, I love Tibetan people. I learned so much from them and really they changed my life. And um, they're the most unique, kindest people I ever met in my life. So, And also because at that time when I had that dream, I was already doing well as a young artist. I, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I was 20-something, but I was selling well. I was making a lot of money. But I was not happy at all. I didn't like the commercial art world. I didn't like the industry's greed and dishonesty. I, I was not happy. But... I, I didn't know what else to do, and mm-hmm. I kept searching for the meaning of create create why do I create? why do I create art? Mm-hmm. besides the fact that I loved it mm-hmm. but I didn't know the answer until then, and then when I had that dream, I think I really believe it was a calling um, to give me the the purpose of why I create art, mm-hmm. and I realized that art is not a goal but it's only a tool to serve others Um, so that was a life-changing voice uh, in the dream uh, I heard then one day I was talking to my very first Tibetan friend ever in my life and when he told me about his childhood at the refugee camp in South India I got this idea to create picture books for the Tibetan children to help them preserve their unique language and Mm -hmm. unique culture. Mm -hmm. And this is how my Tibetan journey started.
3: Yes, and talking from that journey, I want to uh, take you to Dharamsala because from from learning about Tibet, through your readings, through your connections uh, with friends that you met in New York, traveling to Tibet is not easy. So to learn a bit more about Tibet, then the first connection is usually to travel to India, to mm-hmm. Dharamsala, where, the, where His Holiness resides. So how was that? What impact did it have on you? How was that? Was it what you expected? You know, you... You've learned, read everything, and then you went there, um, mm-hmm. meeting with uh, Tibetan community mm-hmm. there. How was that experience?
2: Yes, yeah, so I planned to go to India twice or three times. It failed, mm-hmm. and something always came up, and I was like, oh. But then somebody said to me, to go to India, you really need an invitation from the divine, and that really made me feel like okay it'll come, it'll come naturally, and you don't have to worry, so I waited, uh, and then I planned again, and in 2000, everything just worked beautifully, so I went to Dharamsala for the first time in 2000, and that was my first trip to India also, and it was intense, <laughs> I mean, I, I I had heard about you know, India, and I prepared myself, but uh, it was still intense. But I fell in love with with Dhamshala, and I felt like I had been there before. It was almost like coming home. Uh, I felt so at home there, and it was magical. And for the first time, I stayed at the Nechung guest house because I was studying Buddhism with uh, Nechung monks in New York, and they really took care of me and accommodated me. And um, the purpose of the first trip was to really visit refugee children. So I spent several days at TCV. And then I went also down to Kollegal in mm-hmm. South India to visit schools there. And uh, <clears throat> to be honest with you, I went to India thinking that I would be I will be able to be any kind of help to those kids. But I was so wrong. The Tibetan children were 10 times stronger than me. And I felt so embarrassed to even think that, that maybe I could do some help, you know? Uh, and so I came home thinking like, oh my gosh, I went to India to meet those children, hoping to help them, but I came back. Actually, I learned so much from them and um, their resilience and strength were truly amazing.
3: Thank you, you. uh We do, uh, um, we've been doing, uh, traveling to Dharamsala with our ICT members Mm-hmm. And we also come away every time with that uh, same uh, feeling, our members, you know, going, going there, you see Dharamsala in, when I, I grew up in Dharamsala, but Dharamsala that I grew up was just a little village, you know, and from there, with this holiness, his blessing, it's really become a community and a cultural hub for Tibetans in exile from monasteries mm-hmm. to schools to the library to Neijing Monastery to all these culture uh, culture centers the um, uh, the this, this heart center for Tibetans in exile. Um, so you travel to uh, the, you yourself are of um, Japanese origin. You speak Japanese. You came to America. So you. Uh, 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 of two cultures and two worlds. And so you have your own, this connection to language and education. And I feel that might be what prompted you to do all these books for Tibetan children. Um, Can you tell us your thoughts on that? mm -hmm. So I moved to New York from Mm -hmm. Tokyo when I was about
2: 15 years old. For my father's business, uh, my dad was a businessman, mm-hmm. and it was April. Mm-hmm. So in Japan, school starts in April. So and since the schools start in September in the States, I was alone, uh, only with my governess, studying English at home every day for a few several months, and my parents put me into this very highly competitive prep school in New York where most kids would go to Ivy League universities mm-hmm. and this private school didn't have to, didn't have much diversity at that time so i tried so hard to fit in because i was lonely and i wanted to make some friends i felt uncomfortable speaking Japanese, which is my first language. Mm -hmm. And I tried to copy other kids in order to be accepted. (laughs) But of course it didn't work. So one day this boy came over to me during the lunchtime and I, I was like, wow, you know, because no one really talked to me at school. And he asked me a question and he said, why all the kabuki actors are men and for those of you who uh may not know what kabuki actor, uh acting is kabuki is a traditional japanese theater where all men play female roles so everybody everybody is is a man and i didn't know the answer because you know i was a child and and you know usually young young Kids in Japan don't have much interest in kabuki. (laughs) So I said, I don't know. And this boy said to me, you're from Japan, and you don't even know about your own culture. And he walked away. And I still remember this burning sweat rolling on my back. I was so embarrassed. At the same time, this became my life. Time lesson that you really have to have pride in your roots and in where you come from. And I learned it really quickly uh, as a young kid that this was the key. So this really changed my attitude and behavior and everything. And and, so I. I felt more comfortable with my own skin. I stopped trying to fit in. I became more relaxed. And then naturally, uh, people came towards me and then we made friends. I made friends because I wasn't trying too hard and I was more confident about my identity. So, um because your cultural identity is your lifetime asset, it gives you confidence, strength, dignity, integrity. That was really the experience I I had to really, really honor the this identity topic. Okay. And the language is also deeply connected with identity. So it's extremely important to learn your own language, I really think, and it's, Of course, needless to say that education is crucially important to every human being. Um, Yes, so that experience with this boy, um, really, it's still my life lesson motto today. Even today when I kind of lose my center, lose my confidence, I go back to that experience and then really honor where I come from. So it was a sour experience, but at the same time, it was a wonderful, wonderful lesson.
3: Well, um, in our Tibetan situation also, we are separated from our homeland. We are Mm -hmm. all our younger generation, we are growing up in communities that are scattered around the world and many are facing the same question of, you know, identifying Mm -hmm yourself as a dual identity you know but mm-hmm. and you wear that dual identity so beautifully so you you know you bridge between both worlds so um that's something that uh, our younger generation are also um learning to mm-hmm. work on to, and having to do mm-hmm. as being not losing that Tibetan identity mm-hmm. by accepting say, an American identity, because, you know, you're living in both worlds and you bridge both. So we um, that's one of the conversations we have when we have um, some youth leadership programs that we organize also. So we work with young um, Tibetans, and uh, that's some of the conversations we get to have with them also. I want to also ask about uh, some of the... um, books uh that you have you, you have the you have a number of books that you are such a prolific artist. I was looking at your all the artwork that you've done. Um uh, but can you tell us um the uh, book on Tibetan environment? I felt that's something very, very special for you. Um the, those pieces of artwork there and then the book, can you tell us about that?
2: Yes. So you know
3: Tibet is uh,
2: the third pole, and it's very crucial because of the Himalayas, mountains, glaciers, and rivers, right? So I always wanted to create a picture book to bring this awareness to people and children. You know, people here may think that, oh, what happens in the Himalayas is nothing to do with us, so why why care? Mm-hmm. But since everything is interconnected on this earth, what happens over there will eventually will affect everyone on this planet and i think nowadays everybody knows that but when i was when i made this book it, you know people were not that much aware of what's happening in this on this earth so um i really 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 wanted to make a a book on the environment issue and uh I mean, climate change and um So, that's how I uh, ended up making this book.
3: The Environment, and then also all your other books in collaboration with the Tibetan communities, you've Mm -hmm, done mm -hmm. a number of those, could you just tell us briefly, and how how they were received by the Tibetan
1: communities Mm -hmm. and... Mm
3: -hmm. uh, Right.
2: So, uh, the Health Department uh, of uh, CTA approached me and uh, They said, uh, can we make a book with you? Um, We like to make our first uh, sexual health educational book. I said, great, wonderful, I'm honored to be asked. And so when they first approached me, I was visualizing this very practical sex education book that you would see in this country. And, you know, which teaches children about Uh, Safe sex and contraceptives and all and so on something, you know, like we're used to have here But they said, oh, no, 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 rimala (laughs) we're not there yet (laughs) and I said, okay, what are you thinking and It took them a while to really uh, Tell me what they were really looking for and it was actually that they wanted to make a book of empowerment, especially for girls. And this was the very first time for me to learn the fact that sexual abuse among the Tibetan families and communities were nothing rare. And I w- I was really shocked because I didn't know about it. And I felt so sad, but um, at the same time, I was deeply moved by the fact that they asked me to make this book uh, with because, you know, that means they trusted, trusted me. So I was deeply moved to make this book and I was like, we're gonna make a good book. So this was called Rewa means hope, right? In Tibetan. And um, we made, um, we did a essay contest and um, kids wrote about their experiences. Uh, some some of them are very um, touching. They, some people wrote about their very difficult um, re- experiences they had, but they were encouraging other girls and boys to, not to stay quiet about the abuse, but talk to somebody. If you can't talk to your parents, talk to teachers. Talk to someone rather than keeping everything inside and suffer by yourself. So it was a very important book. And we were very, very happy with the, the book. And we distributed um, thousands of books, uh, you know, among Tibetan refugee schools in India and Nepal. Then I collaborated with the education department to make this book called Tibetan Identity. And what happened was that I wanted to make this book for a long time because (laughs) every year at a Tibetan party, especially New Year's party, I've witnessed huge fights between Tibetans from India, Tibetans from Nepal, and Tibetans from Tibet. And after a few years they start fighting and it becomes really, really bad sometimes. And I witnessed that a lot. And then this made me really feel sad because especially His Holiness is getting old. And I knew that what's holding the Tibetans around the world together has been the presence of His Holiness. I mean, not only one reason, but he's like the major pillar, right? Though mm-hmm. so I was really hoping to have this book which may inspire the Tibetan people to ask themselves again what identity really meant to them. And rethink about what's identity because identity may mean differently to everyone. And it's such a personal thing. Like mm-hmm. uh, I had experienced myself. So it's just, this is something you have to experience. This is something you can't be told how to feel or how to think. You have to experience it. So I just wanted to make this book which may inspire or trigger something, especially in young people. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So um, I went to Dhamshala again, and um, I talked to the education department and they were kind of surprised to hear this idea from non-Tibetan person, right? Like, whose idea is this? And I'm like, it's fine. And they're like, wow, (laughs) let's do it. So, um, again, we conducted this essay contest. This mm-hmm. time from um, around the world, everybody, anybody from around the world um, submitted the essays, mm-hmm. what they, you know, what Tibetan identity meant to them. And mm-hmm. um, uh, we made, again, thousands of copies and distributed. And uh, I think each school had some kind of a workshop um based on this book and they had uh you know discussion group and and it was a i think it was a really good book also and mm-hmm. i was really really um satisfied that um we made this book
3: so you have been collaborating and um instigating a lot of good conversations around uh topics of Different topics on that level. So, thank you, Rima-san, for all your work uh, on those. And next time I'm in Dharamsala, I'm going to look in the school library for your books as well. Yes, please do. (laughs) I will do that. And uh, now, uh, the topic of today's discussion also, I want to now turn to your beautifully illustrated book, um, The Extraordinary life uh, of the Dalai Lama. Could you tell, I love how you describe it as an illuminated journey. Could you tell us how this came about?
2: I, I'm very happy you liked the title because that was not the original title. The the publisher picked that and I think it's a great name. The original title was actually, um, oh, I'm blanking out. <laughs> it was, uh, oh no, Uh, ocean of wisdom and compassion from the mountains no something like that Mm. anyway um, so it was too long Uh so the publisher came up with this idea and um, anyway so some years ago uh, one of the representatives of His Holiness uh, requested me to create a picture book of His Holiness's life story and I felt so honored and I said are you sure are you sure should I record record this conversation because I don't want you to tell me later that I never asked you I was so excited so um and I wanted to publish this book actually in Japan in Japanese because over there in Japan some people still don't know much about his holiness and his life so I thought it would be a great introduction or, or something in depth you know, to to introduce his ownness with. So I approached uh, top three publishers in Japan. Um, I knew them because they've published my books before. But because it's a large, they were large company, it took so long coming from this person to next, you know, it's there's so many phase that I had, I had to go through. So it took a few years, actually. I had to wait. I had to submit sketches sometime. It was a long process. And at the end, the top level decided not to publish uh, mm-hmm. due to the political reason. But you did but not edi- up.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: No, the editors, mm-hmm. they, always, they all wanted to do it but as a huge company the executives nice. including president they think about other issues right mm. and they said no so mm. I talked to the representative again and he said you know what let's do it in, in the states so wisdom wanted to do it. So it was great. It was wonderful because wisdom publications is so highly respected, and they've published many books about His Holiness and of His Holiness also, and His Holiness's books. So I had a full trust, and they're wonderful people, honest people to work with. I said this is great, and so that's how um, how. Um, it was uh, created. It took some years, but at the end, I think it was the
3: best. Oh, it's beautiful. So um, since tomorrow, December 10th, marks the day when we all celebrate His Holiness, his Nobel Peace Prize uh, Award. And um, today seems appropriate um, that um, we are speaking about his life, uh, your book about his life. And with that, uh, we wanted to do, share some excerpts for our viewers. I have, I'm joined again by Ashwin, my colleague. And Ashwin, maybe we can play um, the first excerpt with Rima San's beautiful art.
0: I grew up in Tibet at a time when people were free. Many were nomads and they lived wherever they wanted. My country had vast lands with lush green fields. Ever-present on the horizon were white mountains covered with never-melting caps of snow and cascades of icy water. Wild animals were not afraid of humans because hunting was strictly prohibited. There was a humble little village called Taktsur in the northeast of Tibet with golden barley fields surrounded by rolling hills, green forests, and wide prairies juniper and poplar trees dotted the landscape and peaches apricots walnuts and berries grew everywhere together with sweet smelling flowers of many different shades i was born in this beautiful farming village
3: that was really beautiful rima then the photo the images and uh with the mother and the young image of His Holiness, like that, it's yes, just beautiful. Yes, it lo-
2: the mother looks like you, Tenzingla, <laughs> and um, especially you played his mother in the movie, and um, I see, definitely see the re- resemblance. But okay. you know, this book I started, I wasn't conscious about it actually until mm. somebody pointed out. I started this book with his mother. And ended this book with his mother, and I thought it was a, a beautiful coincidence. Um, but because his holiness often talks about his mother as the first person to teach him compassion,
3: yes. So holiness always yes. speaks about his mother, mm-hmm. and his holiness mm-hmm. has his mother's photo also on mm-hmm. his. Uh, mm, desk or uh, mm-hmm. in his residence so it, that's what and then his this the image of the happy family life and the simple village that he grew i think that had a huge impact on his oldness even though it was just the few years of his early life so i thought you captured that beautifully
2: oh thank you thank
3: i you. think so too right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Ashwin, shall we give another uh, little. uh...
0: I took up residence in a small Indian village called Dharmasala in the foothills of the Himalayas. In that village, I formed the Tibetan government in exile and began building the infrastructure needed to preserve Tibetan culture. At this point, there are about 80,000 Tibetan refugees in India, Nepal, and Bhutan. They had followed me, fleeing Tibet and crossing the border into India. My priority was to build shelters, schools, and hospitals for them. The refugees lived outside in simple, shabby tents. They cultivated the barren soil that no one else wanted and worked hard at growing corn and wheat. Many worked on dangerous road construction sites. Men, women, and children all worked hard to survive exchanging hard labor for little pay. There were many orphans in Dharmasala who had lost their parents and families, some to the Chinese during the escape from Tibet, and some through construction accidents while they were working. I became a father figure to those children and they placed all their hopes in me. I was 24 years old. Rema-san, this photo
3: reminds me of the Salah that I grew up in, my childhood, his wholeness is uh, image looming, large like that with the refugee community around. Mm-hmm. Our people really lost everything they had and it was really hard times. And I'm always moved when I think of how the people worked so hard then. The roadside camp workers, the roadside uh, camp workers, even though they could barely feed themselves, they uh, saved money Mm -hmm. to buy the first car for His Holiness.
2: Yes, I know. Mm -hmm. I I am tearing up uh, hearing um, Mm -hmm. Ashley read, um, and uh, I wrote it, but uh, I don't know. It's still moving, so. <clears throat> we forget,
3: you know, when we remember His Holiness's his life from coming uh, from growing up in that small village and then moving to Lhasa, the capital, and then losing everything he had, escaping as a refugee to India with his community, and leading up to um, his vision out of nothing, he created speaking about compassion bringing tibetan wisdom to the world out there and for his people working so hard and putting tibet on the world stage so that we can today talk about uh, Tibet and our, we still have uh, a an, um, campaign and uh, efforts you know, around the world towards uh, making a difference for tibet and trying to keep tibetan culture alive so that's quite uh uh an amazing um journey of his holiness and then i we had uh, one last slide uh, that we want to share also rima uh, it's one of the ending slides because we wanted to leave away with the message from his holiness and i think that's a uh, uh, a beautiful message at the end of the book so we're going
0: to share that rima san in the end kindness is my religion as i said the first person who taught me compassion was my mother my family was not rich but whenever hungry people or travelers come to our house my mother always offered them food with a smile on her face even if she had nothing left for herself people often ask me wherever i go in the world what can we do for you what do you want us to do My wish is only this, cultivate compassion. We human beings are social animals, and no one can live without love and compassion. I ask you to cultivate compassion because by doing so, you will be happier. If you wish happiness only for yourself, you will never be happy because everything is interconnected and interdependent. You cannot be happy alone while others are suffering because we are all one. That was a beautiful ending
3: uh, to the book, Rima. So can you, how uh, How did you, how, I mean, you know, His Holiness's Life story is just so broad. How did you think of um, ending it with these uh, lines? You know, Atenchala, it was really strange
2: um it was very similar to how i work uh, when i paint Uh, when i paint i don't remember anything i almost go into this trance daze. it's strange when i look at my work afterwards i don't remember how i did it but that's how i've always worked writing this book was the same i read uh all his autobiography biographies and i've read many of his books um but when i wrote the text i wrote everything probably probably less than in two hours i never really sat down and what should i write next how should i start this chapter i never did any of those i sat down and then i meditated and i start writing and then it was just effortless I felt like almost like His Holiness was talking. I could hear His voice and I just wrote, 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 and then I completed everything in two hours. And when I handed it to my editor, I said, please feel free to edit or change. They said, no, it, it sounds like His Holiness is talking and then we don't have to change anything. Except some you know mm-hmm. punctuation thing you know the grammar um so it, i don't know i don't i don't know how i did it uh it was very
3: natural um and uh but it's beautiful and it's almost yes. like you know your collection of thoughts from years and years of yes listening, everything uh, yes came um together so uh, i think
2: so really and
3: um Yes, thank you. I
2: I think I did a good job, not because of me, but because of all these invisible supports I have and I had. I really don't think it's my work. Um, I was the tool, again, to bring this into manifestation. But what was really working was not me. And I feel very grateful that I had those supports, you know, and so I don't take full credit for this, uh, but I'm very uh, proud to be part of this book as a tool to bring arts and texts and make into a book. But uh, again,
3: uh, please don't think. We we get to all (laughs) enjoy it. And then I have to also say that uh, the beautiful voice uh, behind uh, the images that we had is my colleague uh, Lizzie La, who is oh Lizzie, not, sorry, Lizzie, uh, who is sorry. not I'm here sorry. with us right now. But
2: uh, thank you, Lizzie, it was beautiful.
3: And then I'm going to turn it over to Ashwin now. If we have any questions or from our yeah,
1: absolutely. Thank you both for really a beautiful, uh, fascinating conversation about about your process and how you've uh, arrived to the work that you're doing today. Um We have a question here from a friend of ours, Mr. Rynchin, who is uh, watching the live stream, and he's actually asking about the image behind you, Rimasan. He is uh, <laughs> curious about. <laughs> <laughs> I think many people are probably watching and want to know what what is that. So we we're really curious. The thing uh, <laughs> he wants to wants to know yes, is there smiling a uh, pig. So smiling I'll, pig? No, no, yeah, no.
2: Actually, we... yes. Oh. Actually, it's a it's a it's a piece called Daka. It means ignorance, mm-hmm. and it's it's showing uh, the life basically samsara the the cycle of life so let's see this woman is
0: standing
2: on dead animals Mm. and uh, above her there's a a new life which is a baby and surrounded by uh tree leaves so it's, it's a kind of a heavy subject, which is, yeah. you know, samsara, but I wanted to express it in a beautiful way. So you're That's what a... you're looking at. Uh, sorry. The, it's not a no, <laughs> it's no. nice thing mm-hmm. to look at, but um, some uh, animals life uh, cycle also, but it's also right. part of life and it's beautiful.
1: Absolutely, and that's something that people need to learn about so they can free themselves from samsara, right? So, that's yeah. part of the beautiful lesson of that. Um, we have another question here from um, Karma Gautsen, and he's curious about uh, where you can find your books or your other work or your plans. Uh, I know you have a website. Uh, where can people go where they to learn more information about you and to see more of your work?
2: Thank you. So this book is at uh, your store, ICT yes. store, also, so um, you can purchase there too. Also, um, Wisdom Publication, Amazon, places like that. But to support ICT, I recommend to purchase this at yes. uh, ICT uh, online shop. And I have a website, RimaFujita.com. Uh, it's just my name, so all the other informations are there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we definitely recommend people purchase it from our store as well. And uh my colleague John has uh shared the link for that on our uh Facebook live post. So you can get the link to go straight to Rima's book on our store, but you can also get there by going to SaveTibetStore.org. store dot org and uh you can find the book there. Right. And we'll certainly yeah, I, make a wonderful holiday gift for people.
2: Yes, I, I don't sell books from my website, so right. Uh, please go to ICT Bookstore or Wisdom Publications.
1: Absolutely. Um, We have another question here. Um, So uh, curiosity about, um, so you you talked a lot, obviously, in this discussion about um, the impact that Tibetan culture and Tibetan Buddhism have had on you and and your work. I mentioned in the beginning that you were influenced both by Buddhism and also by Bushido and Japanese culture. Uh, so there's some curiosity in the questions about what connections you see between the two and, and maybe a little bit, if we can hear a little bit more about how, how Bushido and Japanese culture influenced uh, influenced you as an artist.
2: Okay. Great question, thank you. Um, so uh, yes, my, my ancestors were the last samurais. Um, if maybe you've seen the movies, uh, Yes, uh, and uh, growing up, my grandmother always, grandfathers, they always talked about our ancestors were the last samurais, how dignified they were and how they carried themselves and lived by those codes. Mm -hmm. And their basic codes are like justice, courage, compassion, politeness, honor loyalty, and self-control. And those elements are very similar to some elements in in Buddhism, and especially compassion, you know, self-control, mind mind training, all that. So, I was raised by, you know, my family who really, really valued these codes. And um, so, how it's impacted me as an artist is for example it's a very simple uh question uh example but if when i work with somebody on a project you know a lot of times artists are seen as very kind of self-centered selfish self-destructive <laughs> you know typical you know image of artists but how i try to work is really respect other people's time and schedule. And then, and I try to bring those codes into work. Um, so, you know, that really, really impacted me as an, a professional artist, because a lot of times I work on the projects with somebody or, you know, and then, um, you know, I never missed the deadline because, you know that it's really really related to you have to respect your uh you know your colleagues time and energy and you know you have to work as a team and all that so that's just one example but um i think ultimately what really impacted me is the self-control part you know the mind training and compassion and uh i grew up in japan until i was 14 15. um our culture is based on those codes without even knowing so like for example when tsunami came everybody behaved so politely politely and we didn't have any chaos and the world was asking why 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 and then the answer was very simple because we live by those codes and And, but a lot of people may not know it, even in Japan, because it's deeply in the culture. I don't know if I answered the questions, but yeah.
1: So, that was very interesting. Yeah, and it it is uh, fascinating to observe too, for people who come from different cultural backgrounds or maybe have spent all their lives here in the West and how uh, there are different traditions and different values and we can all learn from one another. So it's very valuable to hear about some of the values that you have uh, in Japanese culture that I think could help people here as well. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. We are almost out of time, but I do want to ask you one final question here. Um, you mentioned something earlier that really fascinated me when you said art is uh, not a goal. It's a, only a tool to serve others. And so as we're wrapping up here, um, you know, I know in my own personal experience, uh, you know, I do know many people who are also interested in Buddhism and are also creative and they like to create things. And at times it can almost feel like those things are in conflict, because, as you mentioned, sometimes there can be a perception that to be an artist, you have to be very self-centered or you just have to do what makes you happy and not necessarily think about the bigger consequences of the work you're doing. Um so I was just kind of wondering maybe if you can give some final words uh, for our audience, for people who are interested in art but also do want to practice compassion and try to help others. Are there any pieces of advice or uh, tips or encouragement that you could share with folks about how they can also use their their creative abilities to, to help uh, spread compassion?
2: Yes, great question. Deep question. Thank you. Right. I hope I can answer. <laughs> so, yes, when I was... Y- when I was young, uh, I was my first dealer told me, okay, Rima, if you want to make it in the commercial art world, you have to be selfish, you have to be greedy, you have to be, you know, self centered and, you know, all that stuff. And I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't want to hear that. But uh, I do see that is true in, in a way. But at the end, I think it's your choice, what you choose and what what means the best to you because everybody's different. There's no right or wrong in the Mm -hmm. arts Mm -hmm. and what works for you is the right Mm -hmm. choice for you. I have artist friends who only want to make money because Mm -hmm. that's what they want to do. And it's it's a good choice for them because it's the right thing to do. It didn't happen to be the choice for me, Mm -hmm. for me, art is again only a tool so that i can contribute to something to make this world a better place a small contribution i can make but that makes me happy that makes my heart rich and i just thrive for it so i know that it's the right choice for me um so everybody's different so i would suggest for those young artists, if you're watching, just just find out what's right for you and what makes you happy. There's no right or wrong. But what's important for everyone is to use your talent mm-hmm. to make this world a better place, because that's why we're all here on this earth.
1: Absolutely. That's and for everyone. That's for everyone, right, exactly. Whether you're an artist or any, whatever you do in life, whatever you're best at, try to make the world a better place. Yes, yes. So I think that's the perfect note to end on and a great encouragement for people. So thank you for that. And thank you once again for for being here on, for this conversation, we, we really valued it. Uh, thank you, Tencho, for moderating. And uh, since this actually is our final Tibet Talks of 2021, we just wanna say once again to our audience, thank you so much for your support and for sticking with us and helping ICT throughout this past year. You know, this continues to be a challenging time for everyone, but uh, I know your support has meant a lot to me. It's meant a lot to Tencho. It's meant a lot for ICT and allowed us to continue the work that we do on behalf of the Tibetan people. So thank you for being part of that. We will be back with more Tibet Talks episodes in the new year. Until then, we wish you all a wonderful, safe, happy and healthy holiday season and end to this year. Thank you so much. Thank
3: you. Thank, Thank, you. Thank, you, Thank you. Thank you, rima Thank you so much. Thank you, Ashwin. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Ashwin. Thank, 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 Thank you,
0: Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org/slash pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit SaveTibet.org support. Thank you and see you next time on Tibet Talks.